Welcome to Wood Talk, for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who like to use a lot of words, yet say nothing at all. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's episode number 234 for April 13th, 2015. On today's show, we're talking about jointing away from the fence, choosing a router for a router table, and using floats. And all that more coming up. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors, of which we have none. You think when we don't have a sponsor, you'd think that I'd actually just change the text instead of like continuing to read the text that doesn't make sense for what I'm about to say. What's up with that? I think actually it's it should be motivation for individuals to realize that. And by individuals, I mean corporations, because the Supreme Court does recognize corporations as individuals, <laughs> that they should want to fill in that gap. Sure. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Well, I'll tell you what, if you do want to fill in that gap for the, the companies who are not filling that gap, uh, you could do that. Just go to woodtalkshow.com. And there's some links on the right-hand side there where you could support us with a one-time donation or a recurring donation, if you like. And that always helps us out. And uh, you know what? Hey, if those donations became substantial enough, maybe we wouldn't have to look for advertisers. That'd be kind of nice. That would be really, really awesome. For sure. Uh, Now, some of the folks who did help us out with the donation include uh, Mr. Dr. Wilbur Pan. Uh, some dude, oh, that's my favorite, Mr. Doctor. Mr. Dr. Wilbur Pan. Some dude who wants to remain anonymous, so thank you, Mr. Anonymous. And uh, Brian Comerfield and Jeff Waite. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, we really Thanks, appreciate guys. that. That's awesome of you. Yeah. You're my favorite people today. That's right. That is correct. And uh, you know what? You can also go to woodtalkshow.com slash giveaway, and I hope by the end of the day we will actually have that updated with the new giveaway. You go there right now, you find out about last month's giveaway and who the winners are, which is kind of annoying. So hopefully by the time <laughs> you go there, neener, neener moment. <laughs> yeah, we will have a giveaway here someday. Um, you know, hey, the wife's pregnant. She's slow. What are you going to do? And, all right. You, know, you got to make her happy. And that's all that's important. Uh, yeah. By not getting on her case and telling her to do work. So that's yeah, kind of where uh, I'm at I think with I this. Could hear, I could hear the yelling all the way here, not <laughs> even using Skype. Yeah. All right. So let's get into what's on the bench. Uh, I don't have a whole lot going on. Just so Firefox has an update, just so you guys want to know. Um, I didn't know if that was your computer or mine. No, that was my computer. I, I did this <laughs> looking all over. What was that? I did yeah. the same thing. I like looked over real quick. I'm like, I know I'm due for an upgrade. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for the heads up, Firefox. Uh, so what's on the bench? Yeah, for me, I am picking up wood. We've got the sculpted rocker coming up in a couple of weeks. I figured it's a good time to purchase the lumber, let it sit around the shop for a while. So I picked up a bunch of eight quarter walnut from a local supplier here and wound up hurting my back in the process. And uh, oh, gay, congratulations! Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm pretty good at that. I do it on a uh, semi annual basis. And this time it was basically trying to get, you know, not getting the boards out of the truck. Uh, that wasn't really the problem. The problem was the unexpected extra, like, hurdle that I had to work with. And that's my son running around. He's homesick today uh, because he has, let's, he, I'm not going to tell you what he has. It's, it's not fun. And he's running <laughs> you around. You don't want the, people judging you as a parent, is what you're saying? I don't want people thinking about what's coming out of his butt. Um, oh, okay. Too well, late. Oops, I just <laughs> screwed that up. Now we're there. <laughs> so, and anyway. so we start with Vanderlist Nachos and we come down to Mateo. There you go. It's, and just for the record, it's rainbows. Just rainbows. Yes, rainbows come out of his butt. And uh, so he's running around and I've got, you know, these are 10 foot boards about at least eight inches wide. Really nice widths, by the way. And I've I'm, I'm got these things slung over my shoulder trying to get them from the truck into the shop. But I'm also realizing how dangerous a giant board like that is with a three-year-old running around. So I'm trying to, to manage him and close the gate so the dogs don't get out. And it's just this whole debacle. But meanwhile, I'm twisting in ways that I probably shouldn't be twisting with a board up on my shoulder. 
And so, you know, normal using good lifting technique doesn't really matter if you're going to swing that thing around like it's uh, <laughs> like a, a, a bow or a staff. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm in pain right now, but we'll get through it somehow. Now so my first two thoughts are, Mark, if you really wanted to just lay in bed with Nicole, you should have just done that. I'm pretty sure she'd have been happy <laughs> to have your company with her at this time right now. You didn't need to go and do this. Well, that's right. We'll both be laying there and it's like, OK, who's going to take care of Mateo? I don't know. Does he know how to cook yet? Uh, no, he doesn't know where the refrigerator is and can get the milk. So he'll be fine. Jim, why did you build that little helper tower then? He's <laughs> yeah. not going to be cooking dinner. Exactly. Come on. Come on, son. Make us some dinner. Well, actually, he yeah. built that in anticipation of when I come to visit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we do nice. want Matt to be able to reach, you know, soda in the fridge at least. Well, hey, right. since this is a woodworking show, I am curious. What's the um, what's the board footage on that rocker? Uh, Brock recommends 40 to 50. Uh, and it's eight quarter and he does recommend if you can get it 10 quarter for the arms, 10 quarter for the crest rail, uh, the, the headrest, but a lot of people aren't going to be able to get it, especially if you're doing something like Walnut. We've talked about that before. It's pretty tricky to get in really nice thicknesses. Uh, so you'll probably want to go with eight quarter across the board. So, um, I if would I say, remember correctly, doesn't he have a cool tip for like cutting part off and gluing onto the back for the headrest? Yeah, it's kind of uh, I mean, it is a cool tip, but it's been around for a while. It's that whole, like okay. cut the curve. Take the off cut. Doesn't mean it's less cool. Um, yes, it does. Old as, people as every hipster cool. knows, once everyone knows about it, it's no longer cool. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, you basically glue it on the back and you kind of get the extra thickness out of it. Um, but 50 board feet is what he recommends. And you know what? I've I've got this severe overbuying problem when it comes to wood. And I think I think it comes from wanting to impress everyone in the videos. So I want to make sure I've got like <laughs> not just like impress them with the quantity of wood. That's not what I mean. But like being able to pick the best stock and having like being able to have the option to look at these boards and go, you know what, that's not ideal. Let me see if I could find a better part on another board and pick the stock that's best for it. Like think about your ideal scenario if you were building furniture. Most of the time. You're like, look, this is all I have. So somehow I've got to get these parts out of this board. <laughs> like, Make it work. Yeah. If it's not ideal grain, so be it. Um, so I right. totally overbought. I bought like a hundred board feet. So are you going, are you going to, did you get any figured stuff? Or are you just going with typical straight grain? It's walnut. Yeah. It's all straight grain, plain <laughs> stuff. Nothing too fancy. Of course, there's nothing terribly straight about walnut. Yeah. It was like the, the straight grain way. that's with air quotes, you know, cause it's kind of yeah. all over the place. In fact, I want walnut though, man. Jeez. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah, they're ten footers, and like I said, six uh, six inches wide was the the narrowest board that I had. So this is you know, definitely some good stock. But that in my head, I always have this number of eight, right? Eight board feet, because I'm thinking, okay, two inch board. If it's about six inches wide, eight feet long, that's going to be an eight board foot stick. So yeah. I go there thinking, well, if I buy you know six or seven of those, I'll be fine, right? Well, that's only if they're six inches wide and eight yeah, feet you're, long. You're a third again over that. <laughs> yeah. So that's why, I, like, once it's all added up, I'm paying for it, and the the girl's like, "You ready for this?" I was like, uh, "I guess." <laughs> What's going on? And I realized, oh, oh, okay, I bought over a hundred board feet. Okay, so I guess I'll make two of these things. And now, and then suddenly you, the next time you go to visit, you see your picture on the wall as customer of the year. <laughs> customer of the year. Hey, look at me. So yeah, that's, that's how my day went. Uh, they Shannon. start greeting you in the parking lot with a towel over their arm. You know, you've spent a lot of money. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I am, Nolo, welcome. I am the money whisperer, uh, as everyone knows <laughs> now. So nice. Right. Well, in that case, you shouldn't have stopped at just that amount. You should have been like, give me the whole lot. I should have said, oh, that's all I've got. Let me get some more. <laughs> You could have gotten a price break if you'd gone up to like 500 board feet. That's true. Where yeah. the heck would I put it all? 
Mm-mm-mm. I think I might actually build along on that if I can find some spare time because I've got um, I've got some walnut that I just got kind of in the back of my mind thinking this would be perfect for a, a, a Brock rocker, Maloof rocker, whatever. Yeah, oh, that'd be great. It's, yeah. uh, it's the it's really same f- type of thing, except it is 10 quarter. Well, it's scant 10 quarter, so it's like nine and a half quarter. Um, but it's it's purdy, and it's like 12 Wait, feet is long, it metric? 15 inches wide. <laughs> nice. Yeah, is so it board it's, metric it's, rather than board foot? I don't know. I don't speak <laughs> metric. <laughs> well, yeah, I was just I was just thinking it's kind of funny. So like, uh, uh, so Mark got the walnut. Mm-hmm. Shannon has the walnut. Matt barely ever works with walnut, but I have a cousin who actually just contacted me and said, "Hey, uh, I had to take down a whole bunch of trees. Do you want to get some lumber?" And I'm like, "I don't know. What is it? Pine or something?" He goes, "No, it's just like this black walnut stuff." I'm like, oh, <laughs> "I will be there." In like about five minutes. <laughs> hmm, very nice. All that exotic walnut that Matt never uses. I know. I don't know what to do with it. I'm like, <laughs> Why? I don't know. Love nice. it. Good wood. Very good wood. Anyway, um, I did a, uh, a Spagnolo special this weekend and pulled out the leaf blower. Pizza? And, oh. uh, <laughs> that's, that's what, that's that's what I think of that's when I think of a Spagnolo special. No, I'm going way back. <laughs> that's not what back, I'm thinking of. <laughs> way back in the Wood Whisperer archive. Okay. Mark with his leaf blower blowing out the dust in the shop. Ah, uh, those <laughs> were the days. Well, it was, I, I've been kind of complaining about the weather's been so cold and I haven't been able to do any finishing. Well, it got up to like 65 and sunny this weekend. And the great irony of ironies is I had all of about 30 minutes of free time <laughs> this weekend to be able to get into the shop. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to get any finishing done. And it is really dusty in there. So I said, you know what? Open up all the windows, throw on the respirator, put on the air filter and just went to town. Man, it's disturbing. The amount of dust when you go in there with a leaf blower and just start hitting the walls and the corners and everything, oh, just yeah. how much dust comes out of it's there. everywhere. Yeah, I mean, and the, like the cloud formed and it was relatively calm on uh, Saturday, mm-hmm. and the wind started to pick up a little bit, and like the this cloud like moved down the street. It was this actually visible <laughs> cloud that moved down the street. You hear about it on the weather later on today. We had a massive <laughs> I, dust I, I think cloud. I did hear something like that was Freak like Baltimore. Storm. Attention, there's a Rogers coming your direction. Please close your windows. Watch out for the Rogers. <laughs> it was this very kind of cherry walnut maple ish looking cloud. It was kind of nice. Nice, very cool. Yeah, so, so let me ask I'm, you this: Now you cleaned out your shop when you did your renovations, right? Yeah. And this is all dust since the clean out? Well, see, in, no, not entirely, because uh, I didn't really do anything with the floor. Um, and since I never really moved everything out of the shop, I just kind of moved it from one end to the other. I would, I didn't really get a chance to, to um, whatchamacallit, really sweep the floor. True, yeah. And the one, the left wall of my shop, uh, I just did like chair rail down new wall. I mm-hmm. left the original wall above it and that was just caked with stuff. Wow. And nice. everything that got moved around, the workbench, all that stuff, it's just, and some of it probably, um, which actually brings up another point. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I finally realized I needed to replace the filters in my jet air filter. Um, I've been living without that filter for about three months and it's disturbing. Like, well, actually it's, it's, it's heartening what a good job it does. <laughs> right. When but it's when on. When you don't have it running. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it was scary. I got to run mine more often. Out of there. I forget sometimes to turn it on, but it's like, yeah, you, you need to do that. If you got it there, why not? <laughs> My problem is, is it's gotten really old. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a, I need to break it down and play electrician, even though I, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, because it, there's some sort of short in the switch. So when you go from into medium speed, it shuts itself off. So you can put it on low, 
and you can try to hit real fast to get it up to high so that it doesn't realize it hit medium in between. <laughs> but it's really difficult. It keeps wanting to shut off, and it doesn't seem to want to run for more than about 45 minutes before it cuts off on its own. Gotcha. So the whole timer that's built in, which is real nice, put it on for two hours and walk away. Yeah, it just has an automatic timer now, and it shuts off after 45 minutes. I don't know what the deal is. It's probably because it ran for so long with a clogged filter without me realizing it. Mm-hmm. That it I'm, I'm hoping that like I didn't cause damage to the motor, but... It works. Cool. Um, and frankly, with my shop size, you know, running for 45 minutes on high, heck, it circulates the air in probably 12 minutes on high. Yeah, so, so it probably cleans it all out and yeah, does it Just having that backup and running makes a huge difference. But yeah, it cool. was, it's a lot of dust. So I'm glad glad I got that done. I feel better. Nice. Sounds good. You're breathing easy over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt, what about your brisket burritos? Yeah, uh, those were amazing. In fact, looking at that again, I'm thinking the hell with the uh, Vanderlust nachos. I think I'm gonna have to go back out <laughs> and get me one of those brisket burritos. They you guys, insane. You guys, like maybe it's just a, I don't I don't go out enough around here. But some of the foods you described to me make me very jealous. You told me about the the ballpark pizza, the ballpark oh, Frank yes. pizza. Oh, I'm yeah, like, what? Yes. What? That, no one's doing that here. What's going on? Well, actually, I'm I'm in a very similar situation that you are because I usually hear about these after Samantha's indulged in them multiple times. <laughs> and then it's like on one it. of those, well, you know, you've already had one. I don't want to go get one. I'm like, I have never had one. <laughs> well, fine. I'll go, but I'm going to get something else. <laughs> nice. So that happens to me all the time. Actually, I, this weekend, I, I, I didn't quite use the, the leaf blower the same way Shannon did. I actually used it on leaves. It turns out once the snow receded, the glacier is now moving its way uh, further north right now. Uh, all the leaves I did not pick up in the fall because the glacier came down so quickly. Uh, I now had to take care of them. So I did <laughs> a lot of that this weekend. The only woodworking that I did, and this is... I'm just going to throw it out there. I got kickback uh, from uh, some plywood without ever even turning the saw on. So that was a lot of fun. And I've got the mark on my stomach to prove it, too. So that was... That was so, a good time for everybody. Is this how's, like a gravitational kickback? Yeah, how's that happen? You just uh, dropped, so this dropped is where it on yourself? I am, I'm loading up the plywood in the back of Sam's car because it's the only one that's wide enough to like have the size plywood that I needed to get in there. Mm-hmm. I was pushing it forward, and the seats are slightly angled when they're pushed down so that you know there's more space in the trunk area. And as I started to push, apparently the angle of the seats caught the leading edge of the plywood, and my stomach tends to lead wherever I go. So uh, I led into the edge of the plywood, and it literally threw me backwards. It had like a little spring in it, and it shot me like a good couple feet back. And you didn't Uh, record any of this? I mean, what a waste. Uh, Only Sam's laughter. Okay. So she was on the phone with somebody who's like, you're not going to believe what he just did. I think what we so, need is like a reenactment of it. Um, no. <laughs> I, I can maybe post the picture. Yeah, exactly. I can definitely post the picture. It, it, it looks like a real, like, hardcore kickback. I, I mean, I really, really took it to the gut on this one. I've got a nice little scar on my wow. stomach. Jeez. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. So either I am very forceful when I'm putting wood into the back of a vehicle or I'm very sensitive skinned or light skinned or (laughs) thin skinned. I I think it's just brisket burrito power. I'm pretty sure it had a lot to do with it because there was something going (laughs) out the back end to push me forward. Right. There you go. Nice. (laughs) All right. Well, let's jump into what's new. Got some things that you guys shared with us and we're going to share them with everybody else as if they were our ideas. Um, 
not really. We're going to say who did it. Uh, Wade wrote in. He said, with all the posts that Christopher Schwarz has been making about medieval furniture, I thought your listeners would like to know about an excellent blog highlighting medieval tools, furniture, and reenactment. It's the Thomas Guild blog, thomasguild.blogspot.com. It's written by several Dutch reenactors and features a lot of photos and furniture of the tools that they have access to in Europe uh, that we can't see directly here in the U.S. Um, So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. You might want to go check it out. One of the pictures they had on there, all I could keep thinking about was it was like medieval times. Like everybody was sitting around waiting for the jousting to begin while the one uh, really disinterested teenage girl was bringing around yet another round of turkey legs. (laughs) I just think of Cable Guy every time someone talks about medieval times. (laughs) Uh, That's the best. (laughs) Okay, so this next one came in from Mark, and it's not our Mark. This one, this Mark is a Mark with a K. And it says, I came across a post on Reddit and was wondering what you guys think of it. So if you head on over there, it says, uh, well, actually, Mark goes on to say, it seems like this project came out awesome and it looks so interesting. What are your thoughts on this quote unquote ruined wood for projects? Uh, so if you if you head on over there, I don't remember if the picture is up immediately, but there is for sure one picture that I saw was a uh, it looked like it was a turned lamp or a turned vase or something. Hmm. But it's that wormwood where it's like really kind of not not naughty but like it obvious a worm or some other bug had wormy. in had been throughout yeah a wormy there you go yeah and it left this really cool pattern and it's just it's it's pretty darn neat cool right on what are our thoughts on that ruined wood oh we're uh, i think it's really neat and if somebody wants me to make something with it i probably won't make it look as pretty as the object that you would see in this link but i think it would be really neat to do something with it cool i didn't even look at it so sorry Okay. I would, I would we'll take my wanna, I mean, the way he's using it, where he cut it up and, and turned it into something smaller, I'd be hesitant to use it in something structural, you know? So you wouldn't <laughs> make a porch from it, is what you're saying? <laughs> no, probably not. And, you know, the fact that he was able to cut it up and, like, make sure there weren't any bugs in it, I don't know. That type of stuff scares me, frankly, because I never know if there are bugs still in it. And am I going to bring that into my house? And you know, what's going to happen when I do it? I had a uh, piece of driftwood that I put into a lizard enclosure at one point. This was this was a long time ago. Um, and, you know, had that wormy effect to it. I'm just like, oh, this is so cool looking. I love this. And put it in there. And then over time, I would see little sawdust piles and started mm-hmm. to realize that this thing was still infested with whatever, you know, uh, wood-eaten worm, dirt, beetle, or whatever the heck was in there. Um, and I've always thought that same thing. Every time I see one of those telltale holes, you assume it's okay and there's nothing on there. But the same exact thing. I get nervous even bringing something like that into the shop just in case it is something. I don't want to, like, a whole infestation on my entire wood stash, you know. But yeah, yeah, I thought you were getting food for the lizard, though. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. If the thing would come out, the thing would not come out. Yeah, he would uh, just kind of once in a while, I'd see it poke its head out and then you bring it back in. Not, you know, not enough for the lizard to go after. So, yeah, (laughs) cool. All right. This is this comes from Tommy. He says, yes, yes, I know. They're just ingrained cutting boards, but I could watch these videos all day long. He posts three links to three different videos on a YouTube channel called MTM Wood. And um, I'd seen this before. It's pretty impressive. This guy has. Just killer, killer designs for cutting boards. A lot of kind of three-dimensional um, illusions, mm-hmm. flags, Good all stuff. kinds. Of, I mean, he's taken the cutting board to a higher form. And um, he shows you exactly how he makes them, which is something that every time I see these, I can't even imagine. Like, I guess my brain doesn't work that way. Like, how do you even like know where to start with this? So well, it's a cool. It's cool videos. Is in, real, in, in reality, aren't all cutting boards 3D cutting boards? 
<laughs> yes. Ooh, got okay. me there, Matt. Okay. I just wanted to double check. I was trying to think. I'm like, is it four dimensions or three that I live in? I can never remember. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, I threw this last one in just before we went on the air. Jeremy sent this today, mm-hmm. and we all we're all familiar with the golden ratio, right? It's uh, you know the special 1.6 Fabricani, all that stuff kind of plays into it. And, sure. And people are always like, you have to design be, via the, the golden ratio, the golden triangle, the golden whatever. The, not golden triangle. It's the golden rectangle. Doohickey. Yeah, the golden thingy. Section. The golden rule. Anyways, though, so uh, this is a really neat article. I started to kind of read it. I didn't have a chance to get all the way through it, but it's referred to as the golden ratio design's biggest myth. And the whole thing is talking about how um, – I don't know the actual facts behind this. If it's really true, it'd be interesting to get some information from people who maybe have read the article and can back this up. But more or less the fact that the whole idea of the golden ratio is a bunch of doohickey. It's it's a bunch of hooey. It's a bunch of not have to like hogwash. That's yes. There's another one. Ooh, you could use a that strong word. Well, sometimes so, I have to use the big words to get yes, the point um, across. Yeah. And hopefully the, it's a family friendly word, which like that one almost was fiddlesticks. There you go. Um, you know, the so. interesting thing is when, when we talk to folks like George Walker, right, and uh, he, who, who's the other guy, Tolpin, that does the By Hand and Eye book? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, those guys are big on the, the ratio concept, which is something that, like, the first time I heard Walker talk about it just made so much more sense to me. I could understand that I could wrap my brain around it, and I didn't need a calculator to do it. And then the examples they use historically to show things just it just makes so much sense. So it's interesting to see this. Someone basically is just calling it out, saying, no, a lot of these things aren't based on the golden ratio. They might be based on whole number ratios. So that's I would love to see someone address that from the other perspective, like the examples that they use that don't fit into the golden uh, ratio calculation. Do they fit into the other uh, side of it, which is just whole number ratios? Right. Right. Yeah, Yeah, that would be kind of cool. I always just picture some, you know, some carpenter out in the field somewhere with a square, you know, and and he's not doing calculations in his head. He's using, you know, whole numbers. Well, think about it way back then. What did they have? A set of dividers. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and what are you going to do with dividers? Whole number ratios. (laughs) You You don't have any options at that point. So I feel really weird saying like I, I oftentimes will use uh, movies as uh, some of my historical facts because uh, once oh, in a while good. movies are kind of based on some historical things. But Captain I know America. I've seen things on the History Channel, which makes me feel a little bit less like I'm making <laughs> this stuff up as I go. Right. But the, I often hear about like how or have seen things where they talk about ancient engineers like in medieval times. And oftentimes the plans, the ratios are based on like animal figures or uh, figures from nature or something like that. And and they'll use those as, well, we have to make the catapult using sheep head with an ash tree. Oh, you're right. We do have to use those proportions. <laughs> of course. So uh, it would be, yeah, it would be kind of really interesting to hear more about that. I, I just think that anytime it doesn't meet the whole number ratio, it was aliens. <laughs> That's really the most logical explanation, yeah, frankly. I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's a good point. It explains our origin stories. Yeah. Speaking of aliens, uh, the poll of the week is something that our good buddy Tom Iovino does for us. And hope he appreciates that segue. <laughs> uh, let's see. So last week, we don't have a new one this week because uh, we're a little behind. But last week's was asking your thoughts on Poplar. Uh, sort of an underrated wood, but one that does actually get used quite a bit. Usually as what, like a secondary wood. Uh, so here's how the poll ran. There's there's a lot more answers than what I'll give you here. So go check it out. But 1% said that I hate it. I never touch it. 17% said it's spiffy. I use it a lot. 
31% said I use it for certain projects, but it's not my first choice. And 43% said that it's a nice secondary wood for drawer parts, cabinet backs, etc. Pretty cool. You, I was talking with my neighbor about the fact that I'm building uh, Madison's dresser entirely out of poplar. And he said, oh, are you going to stain it? And I said, no, we're going we're gonna to paint it. And he goes, why? And I said, well, it has some green uh, tint in there. And he's like, I love green tint. And I'm like, all right. Well, I got to go take my trash out because I just blew uh, the lawn blow, the the thingy in my backyard and the leaves are no longer there. So (laughs) nice. All right, let's move into our kickback. Uh, Let's see. First one here is from David. He says, during the panel glue up episode, Shannon mentioned a technique of gluing up boards that are in the rough by clamping them together and match planing the edges so that they are complementary, gluing them up and then flattening the panel. I was curious if you could explain what you mean by match planing. I tried this today and the edges weren't true to each other. What gives? Am I just bad at jointing by hand? Any pointers would be appreciated. So I read that, but that's really for you, Shannon. (laughs) (laughs) I want to hear your answer. Um, Well, match planing is essentially taking the two boards of your panel and you fold them up kind of like a book. Um, So, you know, book matching or whatever. So you're folding them in on themselves. You clamp them together in a vise and then essentially you plane the two edges as if they were one edge. So the first thing is, is you need to make sure that when the combined thickness of those two boards is narrower than the width of your plane blade, which unless you're working with eight quarter stock, that shouldn't be too much of a problem. And you essentially joint it as it were one board. And the key is, is obviously if you've got a nice flat face, the two of them should come together just fine. If you're getting that consistent width, consistent length shaving along the entire board, you end up with a straight edge. The cool part is, is it does not matter at what angle you're actually planing that. So if you have trouble getting a nice square edge, don't worry about it. Because what you end up doing when you unfold those boards, they're complementary angles and they end up being flat across the face. So I actually, if you're looking for tips, I specifically angle my plane so that I am not cutting at 90 degrees. And when I unfold the panel, I get this, we're not talking like, you know, 15, 20 degrees. You're talking just a couple degrees off vertical. You get that little bit of an angle, which to me actually allows the panel to um, slip together, kind of like double bevel marquetry, where it kind of slides down in because you've got that slight undercut on one board. Mm. Um, That's the one thing I do. So I purposely, when I put the boards in the vise, I'll purposely put one a little bit lower than another one. So the plane, when you set it on top, it actually cants over to the left or the right. And now you've got it balancing on two points rather than one point, which could maybe wobble around on you, depending on how out of flat those uh, those boards are. So just staggering them ever so slightly kind of acts like rails to guide the plane. And then you work your way down. It also, similar to cutting moldings by hand, it's also a nice um, kind of gauge because when it's tilted, when you're planing on two points you're getting two shavings coming out when those two shavings merge into one you've taken one complete pass along the board and that way you know you've hit all every bit of those two combined boards and you're ready to unflatten it and come together another option obviously is just mark it with a pencil and make sure that you're removing all the pencil and you want to do it in one one pass you're done when you get one shaving along the entire length of the board 
Cool. And, you know, incidentally, you can do that on a power jointer as well. If you have a fence that sure. maybe is a little less than reliable uh, or you just can't seem to get it dead on 90. Um, just think in terms of how you're going to fold and unfold those boards and address the edges in the right uh, orientation. You can actually do the same exact thing and it, it will get you out of a bind if your fence is not super reliable. Yes, sir. Cool. Matt, Sweet. you're up. All right. Well, this uh, kickback came back from came came back. Just back. back. It done came, came back, back from Stein. And Stein says, a little kickback on the flatness of hand planes. I don't think you need to worry as long as the sole was within one shaving thickness. This is because uh, this is because by removing a thicker shaving, you already made the reference surface to the plane less accurate than the sole. While I do not have the way to measure the exact correlation between shaving thickness and sole flatness, my experience restoring planes I can say that there is certainly a correlation between sole flatness and how well the plane takes thin shavings. For reference, I'm up to seven restored planes by now. Also, no material is perfectly stiff, and on long planes like a number seven and a number eight, this means you can actually flex the sole quite a few thou by hand pressure. So Stein was kicking back some information regarding the – we had a question last week that was uh, uh, in regards to being concerned about whether – I think it was about like two thousandths, three thousandths of an inch – uh, off on this flatness of a sole of a number eight, and somebody was really, really concerned that maybe that was going to mess them up. But uh, it sounds like we're okay. Cool. I like Good. being okay. I do too. Yeah. I'm I'm okay with that. All right. This next kickback comes from Jeff. He says, "As far as shop accidents go, they're bound to happen. I've been in a shop forty to sixty hours a week for over ten years." I caught the tip of my thumb on a table saw blade when I was young and reached over the blade to pull a narrow strip through instead of using a push stick. This is the only injury that has made me take a short break. I've only had one bad kickback when cutting a miter on an 8-inch square piece on a right tilt table saw and the time before riving knives. My thumb may have been broken as it did swell up quite large, but I was back to work within an hour. Other than that, Attaboy. there's usually somewhere between 4 to 12 cuts on my hands that only get bandaged if I'm bleeding onto the project. I enjoy the show, if only to laugh a bit at how other people do the things I do when they don't need to make money doing it. All right. So there's the, um, the uh, we'll call it the, the grizzled veteran professional cabinet maker response. It's always good to uh, put us uh, hobbyists in our places. He's laughing at us is what he's doing. Basically, hey, I've... I'm all for it. I've In got his, his wood got ivory tower. Like I work with guys like this that several <laughs> of them can't count to 10 on two hands. And they're like, whatever. I was back in the shop the next day. Just, yeah. you know, put a tourniquet on it. They yeah, clock that, it that, off. That whole thing with the bleeding always makes me think of the fact that when I start bleeding, I'm like, I'm just going to keep going because I can plane that blood out of this. So I don't have time yeah. to slow down. Yeah. That's why I stopped using bloodwood and Paduke because I can't see when I'm bleeding. <laughs> can't tell when you've been cut. <laughs> yeah. It's all disguised. Cool. All right. Let's get into our voicemail. We got three of them to play for you here today. First one is from Brian describing a problem that he has with his Veritas honing guide. Hey guys, this is Brian. I'm uh Santan Valley, Arizona. Question about the uh Veritas MK two honing guide. Um I sharpened some chisels and some plane irons and I'm getting a skewed bevel on the uh, ends of my blades. Done some research online, and it seems that some other people have also experienced this. Mark, I've watched your video on your sharpening system, and I've kind of done the same thing in that I've gotten the shaft and stones and, and done the MK2, and I'm just not getting great results. I'm um, just curious if you guys have any 
advice on what to do as far as getting a square bevel. And what I mean by a square bevel, obviously, any chisel that you've, you've sharpened nice and flat on that bevel, mine is about, I'd say, 30 degrees or so off. And then when I use the micro bevel, um, it even gets worse. Um, I've, I've actually shifted the, the chisel inside of the, the plane or the, the honing jig in order to get it straight. And then once I switch to the micro bevel, it goes all out of whack again. So I'm, I'm assuming it's something wrong with the cam action inside of the, the MK2, but you know, just having issues. Um, love some advice. Appreciate it guys. Thanks. Bye. All right. That is a problem. And like Brian says, this is something that if you do a little digging, you will find numerous people complaining about this same issue. And I have the same honing guide and I have the same issue. Me too. Okay. So I don't have the 30 degree issue. That sounds severe. Uh, mine is just yeah. a couple, like it's a few degrees. He so, sent a picture and it was pretty, well, I was going to say pretty, what, pretty what, dramatic. What was the, cause I know there was a follow up email. So that's what he was doing was sending us a photo of, of it, the issue. Yes. Right. Okay. So if you dig around and here's the thing, you know, Lee Valley, great company, they stand behind their products. It's really unusual to have some sort of, I won't call it a universal issue, but a widespread issue that isn't addressed by them to fix it. Um, I remember contacting them about this in the past and it basically came down to, they, they don't think that there's anything wrong with the unit that it comes down to how you're tightening it down. Uh, parallelism of the sides of your chisels and you know how it's got two screws on each side. Sometimes people are tightening them too much, or maybe they're uh, tightening it too much on one side and not enough on the other, so they're actually skewing the, the, the plain blade or the chisel. The problem is, when I see this, it's absolutely consistent. And as long as I ignore the fact that it's no longer square, the jig works as advertised on micro bevels and primary bevels. Uh, it's just, it's not square. Uh, parallelism isn't an issue because I'm checking for square on the same side that's being used to register the, the unit. If I were checking on both sides, that's when parallelism would be an issue. So it's not. Um, so I've yet to find the answer. If And I would think if it were a tightening issue, you would see different results uh, each time, especially if you intentionally tighten it a slightly different way when you expect right. it to skew uh, differently. So, so I'm on board with you here, Brian. I've got the same problem. It's just not as severe as what you're describing. Um, Matt, what's your experience with this? It's pretty much the same thing that you've described. I mean, once I have that kind of wonky bevel showing up on it every time i put the chisel or the plain blade in there it does the same exact thing yeah. so i mean it goes you know again it would be really weird if it suddenly was starting to, to twist on me and stuff like that so i've just kind of learned to for the lack of a better description kind of live with it and i'm getting great results uh and it's a super easy honing jig to use so i, I i'm perfectly fine with it to be honest uh, one thing i did notice i uh, this really became evident on my uh, marbles, my uh, blue chip chisels that I had. And to be quite honest with you, the sides on those things, um, I don't know. I They're not perfectly square to the actual edge of the bevel itself. Mm -hmm. So it's funny because as I used the uh, MK2, suddenly those things started to become, quote unquote, more square, the actual edge. Hmm. Okay. Um, but again, the, the main thing is I've been getting really good results with it. I've been very happy with the results. So I can myself can learn to live with the quirk so shannon so, can you comment real quick on squareness yeah. of a chisel edge and how much that should matter at what point does a lack of squareness begin to matter well the question is and i seem to remember this in brian's follow-up email the actual cutting edge is square it is the bevel 
and and think of it as like the heel of the bevel, the the top line of the bevel. And and as he is sharpening, obviously you're creating a different scratch pattern. Um, the bevel itself is being skewed, but the end of the chisel is still square to the sides. Um, if I remember correctly, I have run into this as well, and it's a matter of the actual grind of the bevel itself is not square. Um, Which imagine, is fine. Like, who cares? Imagine if you know it's it's not a matter of of tweaking if if the the center line of the chisel and what you want is to get it square to that center line. That is square to the stone, but imagine you've maybe rotated it a degree or two to the left along that axis. So now you've actually ground a compound angle into that bevel, which I imagine, especially in narrower chisels where you don't have the much beam strength across the width of the blade, it could rotate on a high-speed grinder. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see that happening, and I've run into that with vintage chisels that I've restored. I, I haven't had that problem with a premium chisel, um, but it goes away, which sounds similar to what Matt's saying. It kind of gets better over time because essentially you're you're correcting that slightly out of, of squareness of the bevel. Squareness is such a wrong word because, again, the cutting edge is square. But let's be honest. How square do you need the cutting edge to actually be? You know, maybe, and that, that's what I'm kind of getting at. Like, yeah, I, yeah. maybe a mortise chisel, but even then, it w- it a couple degrees that square. I mean, a couple degrees. Think the second you you pound that thing into the wood, who cares what angle it is? Right. But if it so his cutting edge is square, what's off is his primary bevel. So that 30 degrees is not necessarily a mark of of his honing guide. It's a mark of how it was ground to begin with. Yeah, right. the the grind itself, and he's just now seeing it. Square. Okay, well, for me and for many many others that I've read online, there it, it still is a squareness issue at the edge, at the tip. Really? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. So, and it it isn't severe, and that's why now, it's, you know now, I don't is think this about consistent it. Consistent across the width of chisels. Seems to me a wider chisel wouldn't slip as much because you've got a wider surface area. Or is it? It is, is this pretty, only happening in narrow it, stuff. No, well, it's Brian pretty consistent. Said that for he, me. he ran into this with his plane blade. Right. So obviously a plane blade oh. is much wider than a uh, a chisel. For me, and the thing is, it is weird. There are times where I'll take, uh, you know, it won't it won't be as noticeable on certain things. Like you would think, if it were part of the the jig, the honing guide, that was the problem. You put in a two inch wide blade in there, you'd expect to see almost a more sort of exacerbated problem because it's wider and I don't necessarily necessarily see that much worse of an issue. So I still am not a hundred percent like ready to blame the honing guide for this, but the consistency that I get with my results being off 90 is where I have a problem. Like I just feel like if it was me, if it were me and it were my, maybe my hand pressure, maybe it's the way I'm tightening things down. Those things are inconsistent over time, you know, like they would change and I wouldn't get consistent results, but I can take any one of my blades, any one of my chisels, pop it in that jig, put the right micro bevel on, rotate the cam and nail that micro bevel 100% within a couple strokes. I could see like my marker disappears on that edge. So it's nailing it perfectly every time, but it's perfectly inconsistent. Like it's perfectly off 90 is what I mean. Hmm. That's weird. Yeah, it is. And again, I just don't feel I don't want to throw the product under the bus because it's a fantastic product. I love it. And that's why I still use it because I don't care about a couple of degrees here or there. I'm just so interested in how fairly widespread this issue is from, you know, woodworkers who probably know how to hold their hands on honing guides and things like that. Right. I don't know. It's interesting. It sounds to me that 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 slight rotation is actually happening. Um, 
Well, no, you're saying that the actual cutting edge is out of square. It is. And a lot of huh, people, I haven't really dealt with this. It's been a long time since I've even thought about the issue, but a lot of people check that like they lock in the little guide that helps you decide how far out the chisel goes. They lock mm-hmm. it in and check it for squareness and it's off. So a lot huh. of these people are like, the jig is in itself is off. But again, you I know what it, it probably is. It comes down to people trying to impose perfection over something that just doesn't need to be perfect. Maybe and more yeah. than likely Lee Valley's quality control just never bothered to check it because it's just not that important. Well, being able to lock in consistently is the key. It's got to be the same every time. Yeah. Otherwise you're wasting my time. And if right. it's a few degrees off, who cares? As long as all of my chisels have gone through this system and all of my plane blades are through this system, it will be consistent for me every time I sharpen. So it's still meeting the goal. We should also say before the kickback comes, Brian's in his second email said that he has checked and his stones are flat. They've been flattened. So it's not a, all the variables that you can think of. Yeah. He's checked everything for square. He's checked the chisels. He checked the stones, all that. That's all flat. Everything's good. So, it, you know, it, through process of elimination, he's come back to the jig. Right. And it sounds like a lot of other people have had the same issue. Well, all I can say is I used the MK2 for probably five years before I went to freehand entirely and I never really had any problems. Right. So. All right. Let's go on to the next one from uh, Mark, another Mark. Hey, Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Uh, I've got a question I hope you can help me with. This is Mark from Massachusetts. My grandson finally showed interest in woodworking, and first he wanted to make a box to put his uh, PlayStation games in or whatever, and he just texted me and said, gee, Mark, can we make a, uh, a bow and arrow instead of the box? He's 13 years old, and I remember making a bow and arrow when I was that age, but I just went out and cut a branch off the maple tree. I was wondering <laughs> if you have any suggestions on what kind of wood to use to make the bow. The arrow, I think, would be too difficult. But uh, if you have any ideas on how to make a bow, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. So I figure we throw this one over the Shan- to Shannon, the guy who's uh, made a pole lathe and kind of has an idea about uh, wood and flexibility and things like that. So what, what would you say? Sure. Um, well, the, the thing you want to look at, there are two numbers that you pretty much can find if you go to the wood database or any uh, retailer or wholesale of lumber that generally throw the technical specs out. The two numbers you want to look at are modulus of rupture, sometimes known as bending strength, and modulus of elasticity, MOE, MOR. Um, MOE also uh, is heard uh, referred to as stiffness. So bending strength and stiffness. You want a high bending strength and a low stiffness. So something that bends without breaking easily, um, but uh, something that's really, really stiff, obviously it's going to snap before it it bends. They're kind of in in opposition to one another. Mm -hmm. So the the best wood probably is Osage Orange, which is also known as Bois d'Arc in in the the, my franglais. Um, It is a bow wood. Uh, sometimes referred to as bowwood, which is what that means, bois dark in French. It is a ring porous wood that is great, super, super high bending strength with an uncharacteristically low stiffness. So it bends and f- it, it really nice under a great deal of pressure, um, but it's flexible enough to bend without breaking. Uh, another good one, obviously, is hickory. Hickory is known for axe handles and things because it's really, really strong, but it's got a little bit of a springy kind of whip in it. So when you swing an axe handle, uh, when you come, when you actually stop the the swing, it gets a little bit of whip to it, which is what causes that axe blade to to bite so much better than something else. Um, English yew or European yew, I mean, the 
British conquered most of the world with the English longbow made out of yew. Um, it is a softwood, but it has it's very hard, very very dense softwood, but a really like weirdly low stiffness number, modulus of elasticity. Mm. So it it's practically made for bows. Um, the problem with obviously European you, if you're in North America, if you're in Massachusetts, which I don't think he had to tell us he's in Massachusetts based upon that voice. <laughs> the <mail>. accent. <laughs> um, it was, it was wicked obvious. Yeah. That was mock. That was, that was terrible. Terrible. I like the way they say my name though. I think it's a cool way yeah. to say it. Um, you may have a little bit of difficulty finding European you, um, Pacific you has similar, uh, properties, but again, in Massachusetts, it might be hard to get Pacific you, Osage Orange you can get, but it's difficult to find in blanks other than like turning blanks. But if you ask around telling people what you're looking for, you might be able to end up with that. Hickory, you should be able to have a little bit more success in Mm -hmm. getting that. Um, The size of the blank you're looking for, it's frankly, you know, it's something that you can mail order, internet order and get. All that, barring all of that, go and look at the technical specs and look for good, strong bending strength and a lower stiffness. So go to the wood database and look up Osage Orange and write down those numbers. I don't care what the numbers are. You'll never remember them anyway. It's like 1.2 million pascals per whatever. Um, Write down those numbers and then just go and look up those numbers and compare them. You know, is the bending strength kind of in the same ballpark as the Osage or the or the European U, and go from there. Generally, it's going to be a ring porous wood um, because it's got nice ordered rows, and you can there's more room for stuff to flex into. But um, you know, red oak would work, uh, white oak would work. Uh, I think hickory would probably be your best bet. That's what I made my spring pole out of when I made my spring pole lathe. Um, the other thing you need to be very conscious of is how you prepare that stock. Sawn stock may give you an issue. Um, if you've watched any, you know, Windsor chair makers or Peter Follinsby and his chests, he's always riving the oak and splitting it out so you get the strongest cross section of grain. Sawn wood doesn't pay attention to grain. You can get a lot of grain run out, which when you put that bow under pressure, it's going to snap. Um, we're also not talking about like an, an Olympic longbow or anything like that that's going to go under huge amounts of, you know, foot pounds or whatever, however they measure those things. Mm. This is not meant to be that type of bow. Um, so you could get away with not the perfect wood species, but I'd be better to, if you can get it in like log form, go to a tree yard or an arborist or one of those guys that just cuts down trees and buy a three foot log section and split it and rive it out yourself. It's almost not going to matter what species you have because you've got that really good continuous straight grain. So preparation probably would trump species in this particular instance. You know, after that, I bet you he's going to go out to a tree and he's going to pull a damn branch off. Yeah. That's (laughs) what I would do. (laughs) It's going to be like, you know what? I think this is easier. Thanks for the answer. I'm going to get a piece of this maple tree in my backyard. (laughs) It's, 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 it's really technical and geeky, but it's one of my favorite things about wood to talk about because not many people understand that whole bending and stiffness thing. And it plays a lot when you're talking to how strong. Well, yeah. Specialized use cases like that. You've got to do it. Yeah. 
it's so much less about the hardness of the wood and the density of the wood and more about the bending and the stiffness, I think, that determines how strong something is. Right. You know, I was just thinking as you were going through those terms that uh, this actually might help Mark if he has to go to the doctor because he can tell his doctor that he exceeded his modulus of elasticity as he reached the point of <laughs> modulus right. rupture. See, excuse me, sir? So what's wrong again? <laughs> He's the like, oh, so will you still like, be, take two of these, call me in the morning. So it. you still like making bows, I see. <laughs> right. All right, next one. Last one, actually, is from Roberto, our good buddy. Hey. Hey, Roberto. Hey, guys. How you doing? It's uh, Roberto from Illinois. I have a question concerning electric paint sprayers. I'm uh, in the market for one, and I know the uh, HVLP system that Mark uses is on my wish list on Amazon. But I also came across <clears throat> this Graco 16N673 True Coat Pro 2 electric paint sprayer. <clears throat> it claims you don't need a compressor, you don't need any kind of air or anything like that. What I'm going to be using mostly for is polyurethane. <clears throat> now, uh, they're probably about the same price range. I guess my question to you guys is, which one would you go for? I mean, assuming you didn't already have that uh, HVLP system. It looks kind of cool. It looks like a ray gun, this Graco. Looks like you just plug it in, pour your poly, and get to work. Let me know what you guys think. Thanks. All right. I will uh, tackle this real quick. I actually have the TrueCoat Pro 2. Uh, full disclosure, it was sent to me. I didn't pay for it. Um, the goal was for me to look at it and try to explain to woodworkers how well this type of airless sprayer would be able to work for typical finishing applications. Here's the problem, and there's a reason why you never saw it on the site. I could not get it to do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, it's a nice unit. I mean, it's definitely, and it does look cool, that's for sure. Uh, the problem is it's, it takes a little bit of finessing to get the results that you're supposed to get from it, and I just don't have the time to master a gun like that for the sake of just proving to people that, yes, you can use this uh, paint sprayer to spray clear uh, classic woodworking finishes. So I have no doubts that it can do it. I just don't want to put the time in to figure all that out uh, when HVLP guns are kind of built out of the box to at least get decent results. And there's plenty you can do to dial it in and, and perfect it. But I just don't want to work that hard, I'll be honest. So my advice for Roberto is, unless you know you're going to be doing painting and you're going to be dealing with latex in the future, if this gun can also do those other woodworking clear finishes, but your primary thing is paint, you got it made with this. It seems like it can handle it. You'll have to put a little extra work into figuring all that out if you're used to HVLP. But if you're going to do mostly clear finishes, you mentioned polyurethane, and if you do any other type of um, evaporative finish or anything like that, you're probably going to be better off with HVLP. Uh, because you can do the sort of the other way. HVLP, if you get a powerful enough unit, will mostly handle those clear stains and finishes, uh, or well, clear stains, do we? clear finishes and stains. <laughs> but it might also be able to put out a little bit of paint, depending on how well you thin it and how powerful a unit is. So decide what kind of finishing you want to do, paint or clear finishing, and that's going to point you in the right direction. Here's the thing. It's 348 bucks for the Graco, and you can get a Fuji Semi Pro 2 for 399 and that's a full-scale HVLP turbine, two-stage unit. It's not, you know, super powerful, but it will get the job done, and it definitely is going to, in my opinion, in my experience, it'll be a more natural fit for your clear finishes. So that's not to uh, sort of 
you know, bag on the Graco. It's a great unit, and I'll fully admit I didn't put in enough time to get an informed opinion on it. I'm just sharing the short amount of time I had with it. Wasn't immediately obvious to me how to get good results from it with a clear finish. You know, sometimes if if a match just isn't there, um, you have to move on to the next one on your list. This sounds like a uh, dating advice. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's where, <laughs> where we're like heading a- next. <laughs> College dating <laughs> advice for Matt. Thank you. You know, the funny, I'm looking at their website right now. They have one that it totally looks like something I think I saw in the original Dune all yeah. those years ago. Uh, it's crazy. It's even, it's even totally, it, it's, it's battery powered. It's just mm-hmm. like, wow. Except the price tag on it, I think, is like uh, just shy of 4000 Yeah. Well, and here's the other thing, because uh, you just kind of reminded me of that, because of the, the nature of it, where the pump is, a l- there's a lot of stuff in your hand. There's a lot of extra weight there that you wouldn't normally have with an HVLP gun. Uh, where the air is coming from another source attached to a hose. So this is a gun that will fatigue your arm much, much faster than a standard HVLP gun. Or it's a gun that will strengthen your arm. You'll look like Popeye, and one side will be much bigger than the other. Popeye on one side. Uh, All right, so what do we have next? Where's my list? There we are. Let's jump into email. What do you you say, guys? Emails. Emails are the best. First one here is from Joel. He says, Hi guys, last week when Mark mentioned his bone-chilling experiment he did trying to run end grain of a board on a planer, I'm sorry, on his jointer, it reminded me of a question I had for him for a while. I've seen on several of his videos when he's jointing the face of a board, he doesn't run the edge against the fence, but rather has the board free-floating on the bed of the jointer. I've always kept the edge of the piece firmly against the face, even while jointing the face. I tried it Mark's way a few times after seeing his videos and it always scared me a bit. It seems to unnecessarily expose more of the blade and gives me less control. I'm curious if you just learned how to do it wrong or if I'm missing some reason to do it Mark's way. First of all, I never do anything wrong. It's just (laughs) kind of just... Don't you know that by now? You gotta accept that. Uh, No, honestly, it's just a, a habit that I've gotten into for a couple different reasons. Number one, I don't like to run an edge up against the fence if it's not already trued to some extent, because that rough edge can, it can get caught up on it. Uh, this particular Powermatic model has this little insert area just beyond the cutter head. And if you have any little bit of wood sticking out where you don't want it, it'll actually get snagged on that. And I've kind of filled it with blue tape because it's just like a couple thousandth below the surface. And I, I honestly, I should look it up. I don't even know what the point of that thing is. Does anybody know what, have you ever seen that? It's just this little black plastic insert in the fence just beyond the cutter head. Yeah, I know exactly what you're mm. talking about. I've wondered, mine's not black, mine is uh, white. And I've wondered the same thing. I'm like, did, the, they, did they have a piece that they're like, oh man, we got to fill something in with this. Hey, hey, get that over is there. It, it, is it meant to like put like a molding blade? I don't, it's it beyond, like, it's beyond the cutter head. Yeah, like the oh, only yeah, no, the, that doesn't make sense. The only it's, thing I could think like it's the there ubiquitous for, rabbit shelf. It's there. Whatever <laughs> uses it. The only thing I could think it's there for is maybe it's what's making contact with the jointer bed. So instead of metal on metal, you've got metal on you know a, a, like a composite plastic material. Maybe yeah. Right? There's so I I it has a really cool name too. It probably does, like a dinglehopper. <laughs> so I yes. don't. So I don't need, you know. Again, I don't know what the function of it is. Bottom line is, it's a little bit recessed, and sometimes the wood will get caught on that. So when you want to talk about something that's dangerous, how about getting caught right in the middle of pushing something through the jointer, and now you can't move. So do you force it forward, or do you very carefully and gingerly pull back? 
Uh, no. That's not a situation I want to be in. <laughs> oh, no, don't do that. Right? So that's the reason why I generally, if the piece has a rough edge, I will pull it away from the fence and do my passes in the middle. Now, the secondary benefit to that is it helps promote even wear of your blades and the inserts in, in your, depending on the type of jointer you have, it helps promote even wear because how often are you really working at the front edge of your jointer? I guess like right. theoretically you might be, you should be pushing your fence back and forth. So as you're doing your edge jointing, you can cover all sides. Well, I want the benefit of that nice sharp area. So I use the whole thing when I'm doing a face. Uh, now I don't find it's dangerous. It never felt dangerous. It's never set off my warning alarms in my head. Uh, bottom line is I don't take too deep of a cut. And I think if you're taking a really deep cut, as you're pushing across, that might start to feel unstable. But I take a very light cut and I finesse my way through and it just feels comfortable to me. So that's why I do it. And only after the face is done will I joint an edge. And if I have to rejoint that face, I'll do it against the fence. But it has to it has to be a jointed edge riding against the fence that whole time. There you go. There you, know, you go. Should be, it should be said too that proper safety technique on a jointer, your hand should never actually go over the blade. Like you're not running your hand on top of the board as it passes over the blade. You should be moving your hand to the outfeed side, well, picking it up and over. Shannon, come oh, on that's now. That's just what I was always I, taught. It, so I shouldn't eat fatty foods my hand guy. Oh my lord. <laughs> I, uh, I agree. In the perfect world, that's absolutely true. And if you have a European-style jointer, you have no choice <laughs> because the guard right. is like, you've got to lift right. up your, your pads to move it through. Um, if you're ever joining a twisted board, I found that if you're running against the fence, it's definitely going to throw things off. You want that to be kind of floating out there so that you can – I mean, joining a twisted board is always a little bit of a balancing act. Literally. Yeah, that can be tricky. So the fence, having it riding up against the fence can actually prevent it from um, flattening it going over the, over the blade properly. Right, right. Yeah, hand tool guy's going to shut up now. <laughs> <laughs> well, hand tool guy does have what a uh, thirty-five inch uh, planer. So, well, fortunately, he just sends it in and steps away. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. there's, no, there's no holding there's, on that thing. There's really not a lot of technique to that. Just kind of <laughs> yeah. stick it in until it catches and and, and it just goes. Nom, 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 nom. And right. the elves with the tiny lasers take care of all of it. Exactly. Sweet. Well, hey, well, so this next email came in from Jeffrey, and Jeffrey is asking. I want a second router so I can leave one attached to the table and due to budget constraints was thinking to buy a cheapo router for this. Is this a bad idea? Oh, hold on. Let's not answer it yet. He has a little bit more here. If it isn't, which then which one should I attach to the table? The good one or the cheapo? It helps. If it helps, I use a uh, Porter cable router now. It was thinking of, say, a skill or a similar cheap router for the second one. Um, you know, really when it comes down to it, uh, I totally get why you would be thinking, let's go with something just a little bit more inexpensive because a lot of people like to have multiple routers. In fact, I can think of uh, one person who was on TV for a while that had like, what, I don't know, 14,000 routers uh, throughout his shop in the new Yankee world. <laughs> Those uh, Porter Cable 6900s, I think, right? He had like 20 of them. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. He had the whole entire warehouse. When you ordered one, it actually came from his drawer is what it turned out. <laughs> Um, you know, really when it comes down to it, if you, you already know the benefits of having a, a decent router and I totally get why you would want to have another one because it's always nice to have something set up in there so you don't have to worry about undoing everything and getting it all taken care of. It's just nice to have multiple tools, but if you're already getting really good results and you're really happy with the more expensive or the, the nicer one, do you really want to go to something cheaper? I mean, quite honest with you. It, 
I know for myself, I have actually gone this route and immediately returned the tool as fast as possible because I was so unhappy with the results I was getting from the quote unquote cheapo version. So even if you were to take that one and to have it dedicated purely in, say, a router table, um, I still have a feeling that the results that you would be getting from it would be completely below what you're anticipating from it. And especially if you were to use it, say, for the router table, um, that's the type of thing that you're going to be putting some rather big bits in potentially, maybe like a panel razor bit, or you're just going to be doing a little bit heavier work with it in, say, the router table. So for sure, if you were to go that route, do not put it in the router table. Use your nicer one for that, the one that will actually handle the work. But more importantly, what I'm trying to say is don't chintz out on this. This sounds like one of those things that you're going to find spending the money is going to give you the result that you actually want versus the immediate satisfaction of just being able to go out and pick up a cheapo tool. Well, there's cheap and there's like capital C cheap, right? Yes. And there may be other brands where he could save a few bucks. Like he mentioned skill in particular, and I'm just looking on Amazon. I don't see that the skill routers are that much cheaper than the Porter cable. That if, that's if you also, that's exactly what I was just looking at, like right? how much of a price difference are we talking? Yeah. So you know, there's the Harbor Freight 1999 model, you know? Yeah. That one you might be a little careful about maybe a black and Decker, maybe be a little bit careful about that one. But I think right. this the, we're, just kind of because he specifically brought up skill as one of the cheaper ones, um, your skill, your, uh, what's the Home Depot brand, uh, rigid. Rigid, yep. Right, those are not bad routers. So yeah. I don't really think you're you're sacrificing much with that. Just avoid the low, low end in general with tools, I think is probably a good policy across the board. It's probably you know, a safe bet that his Porter cable is the 690, like the most common Porter cable router in the world that comes with that little uh, plunge and fixed base kit that you can buy at most home centers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's probably a good all-around handheld router. And if he really is going to go to a table, first of all, what what's he going to do in the table? He's making the table himself. Is he using a lift? So like if he's using a lift, well, how much money is he spending on that? Then you're going to drop a cheap old router into an expensive lift. Well, exactly. Okay, so it's like you're not yeah, getting, getting the body of a Mercedes Benz and then going, you know what? Let's go ahead and put that lawnmower motor in there. Right. That'd be awesome. But <laughs> I was always told that you want at least three horsepowers in the table. Horsepowers? Yes, horsepower. Plural is definitely the way to say it. <laughs> you want at least three horsepowers. Well, if it's more than one horse, it tends to be powers. So. Right. Uh, um, what, what kind of powers would a horse have? Like the power, the power to eat hay and yeah. carrots? Well, how many horsepower does a horse have? <laughs> one. one. Oh, only one. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. If he's, if, and Matt, you mentioned this too. If he's doing panel raising, if he's doing yeah, really wide bits, like he needs variable speed control. He certainly yeah. needs extra power to be able to take that big of a bite for certain things. So that is where you want, you know, for me, I've got a, a, a what is it? The Porter Cable 3, uh, the 7518 Speedmatic. It's three and a quarter horse, uh, horsepowers. And it's super, super strong. It's like a great router for for that purpose. But it's way more router than I would want handheld. Oh yeah, you yep. know. Yeah. So that I yeah. think that is your. That's a great point. I mean, even if the cost is right, you do have to consider what you're doing with it and how much power it's got. Right. Well, I guess like the whole thing when I read his skill when he mentioned skill in there, I, skill. I had a skill router was one of the first ones I ever had. In fact, it was the first one I had, and uh, there was one of those situations where. 
I guess I didn't know better, and so I made do, and it wasn't until I suddenly realized after some horrible situations with it, which had nothing to do with going into my hand or anything, <laughs> that I suddenly realized this is a piece of – I don't want this anymore. I'm going to go for something nicer. So I have a, I have a real issue with even though you want to add yet the same kind of tool into your – uh, arsenals that you have more of them. I have a real hard time with kind of going down when maybe you could just make a lateral move yeah. and get something very similar because you know the results. You have a certain expectation of the tool performing a certain way, and there's just that idea of taking it a notch down and suddenly going, hmm, this isn't what I thought it was going to be, and then having buyer's remorse. It is tough to go backwards, isn't it? Like the first time yes. I had a Vanderlist yeah. Nacho. Ruined all other nachos for me. All other nachos were just bad. I know. I know. The other thing, if he's going to stick this in a table, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. So any little vibrations it picks up because the casing is cheap, because the motor is cheap, you won't really know that. You know, we're using a handheld tool and it starts to get a little wonky on you. You can tell. You can feel it. You can hear it. You can smell it sometimes. When it's kind (laughs) of in the worst table. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when it's in the table, it may not be as obvious, and I would want something I can really rely on. If I'm going to lock it up inside the table in there, and it's not going to be as obvious when things go wrong. Yeah, good All point. Right. All right, Shannon, you're up. All right, this comes from Chris at uh, over at the Lighthearted Woodworker. Um, good blog, by the way. Uh, he is building a Rubo bench, and after cutting the through tenons in the top, it occurred to me that a float might just be the thing to clean them up. I reached for my rasp, but I was concerned that it might be too aggressive and damage the shoulder if I wasn't careful. So my question is about floats. Do you use them? Lee Nielsen seems to be one of the only folks out there manufacturing them. On their site, you can order push-pull, several different sizes, joinery versus plane makers, lots of options, but not a lot of information on the web about them, other than Graham Hayden recently demonstrating how to sharpen them. Any insights? Well, I, I probably safe to say that Graham is probably going to follow up with a usage video. He just showed one on how to sharpen for popular woodworking. So I have a feeling he's leading somewhere with that. So maybe a little patience will help there. But um, the the floats floats are cool. Um, the funny thing is, is floats can be ridiculously aggressive, like much more than a rasp. They also can be really, really fine. There's a lot, I think, more technique that comes to using them. Um, probably the best thing I have seen on how to use a float is actually Larry Williams molding plane video by Lee Nielsen, how to make uh, side escapement planes. He puts a lot of uh, not only time into sharpening it, but also how to use it and how to properly leverage that front tooth to actually pull up a shaving with it. So although he is actually building a plane, there's quite a lot you can learn. And that's where I learned how to use floats. I use them from time to time. I have a couple of joinery floats. And what is nice, specifically to Chris's question here about being worried about damaging the shoulder, is the edges will depend on the float. Obviously, the, the joinery floats have specific um, purposes, but generally only one face cuts and the edges are safe. So with uh, like a cheek float or any kind of joinery float, you could run that right up against your tenon shoulder and only be cutting and bringing down bringing down the face. The best thing I can tell you, um, they're really very, very useful, but I'd be worried. I wouldn't know how I would write something on how to use them. I'm not even sure how I would talk about how to use them because it's such a tactile thing. It's, um, I mean, you can, you can put a little bit of pressure on the back and push with the hand and you can kind of feel when the tooth engages and how to pull up a shaving with it. And you can feel 
as the uh, say the surface you're working the tenon cheek is maybe out of flat you'll feel how the float will kind of rock around and you push it a couple times until it gets real stable and then you know it's flat it's a very touchy feely thing to learn how to use but it's not terribly difficult at the same time so it is one of those things where i'd say you might just want to pick one up and play around with it and you'd be surprised how kind of intuitive it is to use which is probably why no one has really ever written about how to use them <laughs> hey pick it up and push it you right. know, or pull it um i've i've got a pull float that i've used in mortises from time to time it's real narrow so like for hitting the ingrain the narrow ends of a mortise and that's pretty cool um because you just drop it down in the mortise and you put a little pressure and pull up and it will really clean up the vertical wall of a mortise um they're just really touchy-feely tools yeah. um pick one up and use it you can buy them vintage um if you if I don't remember what they were at Lee Nielsen, I don't think they're super, super expensive. So if you have to look real far to find them vintage, you might just be better off ordering from Lee Nielsen and getting them that way. I feel like there's other makers. I think the Leoget French Rasp Company makes floats as well. You might want to look into them too. But I say pick one up. You'll like it. You know, the very first Lee Nielsen tool event I ever went to, um, I picked up the uh, the floats. I think that's when they first uh, introduced them from from Lee Nielsen, at least the version that they're carrying. And mm-hmm. I was totally just brought sucked into it because they were showing how to do something with uh, the mortise, like what you're describing. And I said, I've got to do that because I am planning on doing a lot of mortises by hand. And the first time I did it, yeah, it went super aggressive, and I suddenly went from. Uh, the right sized mortise to, um, <laughs> I guess I need to redo that tenon. Yeah, should have just left <laughs> yeah. that one alone. <laughs> yeah, that there, I should be true. There is a little bit of finesse when it comes to controlling how much you take off. That's why I say they actually can be like really aggressive, like your yes. six grain or four grain rasp and remove wood really, really fast. But mm. you know, it, that comes with just playing around with it a little bit. And that's actually a good point. If there is a Lee Nielsen event anywhere in your area, go pick up a couple and play with them and you'll probably decide you want some. They're All dangerous, the ones though. at Lee Nielsen look like they're coming in at about $60 each. $50, really? dollars yep. That's not bad. I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find one, you know, unless you've got an antique store that you can drive to and not spend a tank of gas to get there. Um, I think you'd be hard-pressed to beat that price, frankly. Hmm. Um, I, I know I wouldn't have one anywhere near, so I'd end up ordering it, paying shipping for it, and probably end up paying 40 bucks anyway. <clears throat> so, I don't know. Seems like a good deal to me. Cool. Sounds good. All right. Well, that just about does it for our show today. Uh, if you want to support us, you can do that. We always appreciate that kind of a help. Uh, go to woodtalkshow.com, look in the right-hand column, and you'll see a few links where you can do just that. Uh, go to twwstore.com and pick up a Wood Talk t-shirt. And as soon as we have a chance to get it up and running, go to woodtalkshow.com slash giveaway and get yourself entered to win a couple of cool things. We got a t-shirt and a set of plans from Matt with his tall dresser, fancy tall dresser made out of poplar that he's doing. That's and, right. Uh, the super expensive <coughs> poplar. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, Ironically, <coughs> he was the one that posted, he hates it, never touches it in the poll. That's right. <laughs> As we trace that back to you, now we know. <laughs> we know the truth. It's the 1%. <laughs> that's it. 1% I, I was hoping I would get some, I wanted some curly poplar, but <laughs> apparently that wasn't available. Nice. Uh, now, you can also go to iTunes if you'd like. If you use iTunes, leave us a review there. Just click on uh, ratings and reviews on our entry and use a, uh, let's see, what do we got? A five-star rating there, just like Splinterville Woodworker did. Where is he? Splinterville Woodworker. He says, just what the doctor ordered. Need a prescription for, <laughs> I'm just thinking, I got a, I got a, what is it? 
prescription for it. I'm thinking of cowbell, SNL. You know what I'm talking mm. about? I got a <laughs> got fever. A fever. I got a, a fever. fever. All right. Need a prescription for improving your woodworking? This is it. Mark, Matt, and Shannon bring their expertise as they inform us what they're working on, answering listener questions, interview notables from the world of woodworking, and just conversing amongst themselves. The best part of this podcast is the hosts don't take themselves too seriously. Their self-deprecating humor is infectious. Also, they aren't afraid to admit when they're wrong, change an opinion over the years, or listen to the advice and criticism of others. Careful, though, listening to the plethora of past episodes can be addicting. Yeah, I just, you know, it, it something makes me feel good about putting myself down. I think it's a self-defense mechanism. So, like, mm-hmm. do it before yeah. someone else does it. Yeah, <laughs> it's I like putting come, you down, so you might too. Well do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd rather the pain come from, uh, be self-inflicted than from strangers. Uh, but that's about it. How about you giving that contact info, man, and we'll get out of here. All right. Hey, folks, if you also feel like Wood Talk is like the cowbell of the woodworking world and who couldn't use more cowbell, there's several different ways to contact us and leave us a comment, a question, a suggestion. You can uh, leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Our voicemail line, you can call that at 623-242-5180. Email us at kickback at woodtalkshow.com or you can leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're ever looking for the show notes or that plethora of amazing goodness from all the years where we just absolutely uh, make absolute fun of ourselves mm-hmm. and, and say horrible mean things to each other mm-hmm. about ourselves mm-hmm. you're gonna find those over at woodtalkshow.com so check those out because yeah why not it's good for you that's yeah, good for you definitely cool all right With well thanks ordered. thanks for listening everybody we'll catch you next time see ya yeah see ya <laughs>